This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you would open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Uh, We're going to look at a passage out of Mark 9. We have been in a series uh, on renewal, a series on revival. That's what we've been studying, and that's what we've been asking God for. And the passage we're going to look at today is, uh, it's not a passage directly about a a revival that took place among God's people, um, but it is. It does. It does reveal a very important aspect of renewal. The last three weeks we've talked about repentance, which is a vital part of renewal. There is no renewal in the Lord. There are no revivals in the Lord that don't involve us turning to Him and turning away from uh, the things uh, that uh, the idols that we can cling to. So it's turning to Him. That always happens when God renews us. And what we're going to talk about today is prayer and talk about how God renews us in this way as well. Some of the most effective lessons that we learn in life, we learn from failure. Uh, Actually, we learn a whole lot more from failure than we do success. And that's what this passage is about. I, I learned a life lesson through failure when I was 15 years old. Um... And uh, I was 15 years old, getting a summer job, and uh, my dad got me a summer job because he knew the, knew the folks, working for, uh, as a helper to an electrician. And uh, this was a bad idea because I wasn't a handy guy, wasn't overly mechanically inclined, and really, if, uh, if your children aren't sort of gifted in that way for their first construction job, it's probably not good to be around electricity. <laughs> and uh, it'd be wiser to have said, is there some place that needs like to be swept? Or uh, can he carry some two by fours for the framers or something like this? Instead of, can he go play with electricity? And uh, the guy I worked for is a really nice guy, but he just tossed me in and said, hey, let's go for it. So he wasn't, uh, you know, trying to preserve my life or anything like that. <laughs> And uh, so I just remember very early on um, learning how to do basic stuff and just seeing these experienced electricians, they would call it getting bit. Uh, they, they weren't worried by a little shock. So, you know, they'd put in, they, they'd times put in a switch knowing the wire's live and just be careful and you got rubber things on your, on your pliers, whatever, you're fine. So, but occasionally you'd, you'd get a shock. They'd call it getting bit or putting in a light fixture, get a shock. And so I had that happen. So I was part of the club and it didn't kill me or anything like that. And then came the day where he, uh, the electrician asked me to go and do something with, a, with an oven that was to be... It, uh, put in, and an oven is not 110, that's 220, which is a different league altogether. It's, it's the difference in your eight-year-old's uh, coach pitch team and the major leagues. That's the difference. And uh, so I had been bitten, was fine, and was fairly confident. And so he told me, what you're going to do is you want to take this, I don't forget what it's all called, but this, this box, it would be like an outlet box, and uh, it, you want to put the wire through it and then just mount it, screw it into the wall, because they're going to put an outlet. So, you know, I didn't really check to see if the power was off, and he probably assumed it was, or if he didn't. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he probably assumed it was, so he sent me to do this. And so the box you put in, the outlet box, is metal. And um, it's not rubber, uh, it's metal, and don't know if you know this, but metal conducts electricity. And um, 
So I went in there pretty nonchalantly, again, having been bit a time or two, and, uh, you know, it's down low, and so I kind of squat down like this, and I take the, the metal box, and I take the wire, which, as you can tell where this is going, is live, and I put the metal box, I run the wire through the metal box. Now, have you ever played the game Operation, where... <laughs> You have the metal clippers, and you try to get out the bone. And so if the wire had gone through and not touched the metal box, and I didn't touch the end of the wire, uh, hey, life would be great, and I wouldn't have had an opening illustration to this sermon. But uh, as I'm putting it over, well, lo and behold, the box touches the end of the wire. And um, I've always been blessed with cat-like reflexes and um, <laughs> and uh, hidden ninja skills, which has served me well. But at this moment, my reflexes were beyond anything I've ever seen. Have you ever seen that cruel science experiment where you poke a frog and his legs go like that? Where you poke him with electricity and his legs go like that? That was it. So I was like this. The next thing I knew, literally, I was just back here somewhere sitting on the ground, shaking a little bit. It threw me, threw me off. And uh, that, was, uh, that changed my whole summer. I, it, I never, I had a different appreciation, a different view. I learned about... Uh, how to handle carefully uh, power and electrical power. I, I went this week to look. I, th- I thought, I wonder, was my life in danger? I don't know. Do people die from that? I didn't know. And so I went online to look, and um, not tons of people are getting electrocuted putting stuff in, uh, you know, in houses and stuff. Some, some do. But on there, what I read was uh, they had this prevention, they had this statement, prevention. Yeah, like someone should have introduced that to me. Prevention, education about, and respect for electricity are essential. I, after that moment, had an education about and a respect for electricity, which are essential, that I never had before. And to this day, uh, I have an education and a respect because I learned something through failure. Uh, you need to ask questions, you need to be careful, you need to not assume that you could handle a small bite if it was live uh, when you're working with a 220 wire. That's what I learned and have practicing to this day. That was a lesson through failure, and the passage we're looking at today is a lesson through failure. The, the disciples fail in what we're going to read today. They fail related to power as well, different, different altogether. That's not where I was going with the story. But they, they fail, and they learn something, and we learn something through what Jesus teaches them from this, uh, this experience um, if you're familiar with the Bible, you will know this story as soon as we jump in. If you're not familiar with the Bible, uh, th- this is why Bible reading is interesting. Put on your seatbelt. This is quite a passage. So Mark 9, verse 14. Mark nine fourteen. This is God's word to us today. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, meaning Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. 
And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if I can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying uh, to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but any, by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we pray today that you would graciously speak to us through your word. We pray that your spirit would address our hearts. We pray that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would grant us the gift of illumination and we would see you in your power, that we would know you as the God who is powerful over all darkness. And we pray that you would show us our dependence and we pray that we would embrace our dependent our dependence and we would find you rushing to our aid as we read in this story. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us now, that you'd show us your grace, that you would call us to yourself, and that, Lord, you would awaken us, for that is what we are praying. Awaken us to our need. Awaken us to your greatness. Awaken us to your merciful love, which comes to us in our need. May we encounter you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to break this passage down into three kind of scenes. The first scene is verses 14 through 19, and here's what's happening in the context. Jesus has just been up on uh, a mountain. He's taken Peter, James, and John with him, and he's been transfigured before them. Uh, this means that his, the glory of God uh, has, has come upon him, and his body is emanating this glorious light. And if that's not enough, Elijah and Moses show up, who've been dead for a long time, and they're talking to Jesus. And the three disciples are there. They're blown away by all of this. Then God's voice thunders and says, this is my son, listen to him. So it's a marked moment in his ministry. Well, they come down the, the mountaintop, which is glorious, and they immediately come into this valley where there is chaos, They're coming from real light. It's quite a contrast. Matter of fact, Raphael has a painting, an unfinished painting, not now, but later you can Google this after the story. It's a great illustration uh, of this uh, where you see the difference of Christ and glory and then you see the demonized boy and the disciples and everything at the bottom. And it's light and darkness. He, He catches this. There's this confusion going on. And there's confusion because when he comes down, look, verse 14 uh, when they came to them, to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. He comes down to his disciples arguing with experts in the law. So we have a boy that is demonized 
and cannot get free. They try and they cannot free him. We have a dad who is desperate, and we have the disciples arguing with theologians. It's confusion. It's dark. Darkness is present. Evil is winning. That's the picture. There's the glory of God on the mountain, but evil is winning in this situation that Jesus walks into. So when he walks in, the people come running to him, verse 15, and he says, what are you arguing about, verse 16? What are you arguing about with them? And then this guy from the crowd comes running up to him, and he says, I brought my son to you. But Jesus not there, so he interacts with those who serve with Jesus, the disciples. Uh, I, I brought him to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and it seizes him, throws him down. He describes this uh, this seizure that his boy happens that happens to his boy from the spirit. He he becomes rigid, and he says, "I asked the disciples to cast it out." And, and, and look at his wording: they were not able. Verse eighteen, they couldn't do anything to help. And so he has this son who's suffering terribly. Now, this is not like a, you know, uh, uh, a misunderstanding of a medical condition. This is not the way ancient people understood, you know, seizures, epileptic seizures or something. He's not saying that, well, he, had a seizure, he has a seizure condition that could be solved by modern medicine, but they didn't know that back then, so they just blamed it on things that go bump in the night. Must be spirits. <clears throat> that's, that's not what's happening. Because when Jesus shows up, this is a spiritual issue with physiological implications. But this is not epilepsy. This is demonization. Verse 20, uh, they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. So when he encounters Jesus, then the spirit acts and, and acts against Jesus and convulses his boy. This is not a condition that you could get a prescription for, uh, that you could change your diet, get a little more sleep and exercise and be okay. This is a demon. And uh, that's what's going on here. That's how this scene is so dark. So they're unable to do so. They lack the necessary uh, power to free him from this. So Jesus laments the situation, verse 19. Oh, faithless generation. Faithless means without faith. Without faith. It means unbelieving. So he is righteously exasperated. This is holy disappointment. This is perfect grief. This is not sinful. He's not just how he goes on to say, you know, how long am I to be with you? This is not the sinful, impatient parent that says, what is a mother to do? You know, like your mom or my mom may have said, no mom's here, but historic. It's, it's not that situation. This is Jesus who is saying, I have been with you, and how long? I'm not going to be with you that much longer. I'm about to go, and you lack faith in God to be able to help this person. And we'll see what that means in just a minute, how he lacked faith in God. So he doesn't just throw his hands up and say, I can't believe this. I'm out of here. Come find me when somebody's got some faith, and I'll see what I can do. That's not what he does. He grieves their situation, and he moves toward the darkness to bring light. He moves toward suffering to bring relief. What does he say? Verse 19, the last phrase, bring him to me. Bring the boy to him. So verse 20, they bring the boy. The spirit seizes him. He convulses. He falls on the ground. And Jesus begins to dialogue with the dad. Now, why is that? You think he'd be panicking. Do something now, Jesus. Uh, Jesus isn't in a hurry. Uh, he has all power. 
Um, everything's going to be okay. So he's not freaking out and worried. He begins to talk to the father, and this shows us that he's caring. This boy is not a project. This isn't an illustration. He's not thinking, this will make really good Bible. Let, let's go ahead and play this out a little bit. He's caring for the, for the family. And so he says, how long has he experienced this? And we get this window into the suffering of the boy and the dad. From childhood, verse 22, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Now, when the spirit attacks him, he goes mute. And the spirit tosses him into fire and he can't scream. He can't talk. The spirit shuts down his mouth and throws him into water to drown him. This is ultimate wickedness. To, to harm this boy who's evidently older than young childhood, because it's been with him a while, but to harm this young man in this way. Can you imagine what, what, what the dad must feel like? There is no hope. You hear about Jesus. You come to those who are with Jesus, who actually we're going to see have a track record of success in delivering people from demons, and they can't do anything. So there's a desperation. How his heart must ache for his son, who has had no help as this spirit tries to destroy him. They pull him out of the fire. Perhaps he's scarred. Pull him out of the water to rescue him. And so here's the man's plea. He says, verse uh, 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, if you can do anything, would you please be compassionate given our misery, our emptiness, our suffering, if you can. Now, now what is can is, can is, is, is a statement of ability. He's not saying if you want to, that's the compassion, have compassion. He's saying, can you, are you able, if there's anything you can do, please Help us. And Jesus responds in verse 23, and he says, If you can, all things are possible to the one who believes. He's saying, this is not, the, the issue here isn't my ability. Without any effort whatsoever, I can rectify the situation. I can change everything. The issue is not if I can. The issue is, do you believe? Is there a trust? Are you looking to me believing that I am the answer to your problem. Jesus is reframing the issue. Everything is possible to the one who believes. Why? Because they have enough faith? No, because the one we believe in has all power. Everything is possible to the one who believes in God because God can do all things. That's what he's saying. He can do anything. And in what is one of the most honest and provoking statements, I'm so thankful for the word of God. And as I read this, I'm so thankful that the Lord put this in here. Look at this guy's honest statement. I believe. Help my unbelief. Man, if I'm a dad and my kid's suffering like this, and Jesus says, if you believe, he'll be okay. I'm just saying the first part. I believe. I believe. Let's go. I, I believe. I'm fully in faith. Yes, you. You can do it. I'm just saying, great. That's the right answer. That's the Sunday school answer. That's the, that's the Christian answer. I believe in Jesus. Yes, you can do it. But this guy is brutally honest. He's brutally honest. And he says, I believe, but would you help me? Because I've got doubts. I believe, 
sort of. I believe, but I've got a track record of disappointment that says nothing's changing. I mean, this has happened for years. And by the way, when I went to Jesus's team, the disciples, nobody could do anything. That's a bit disillusioning. I went to Jesus's leaders and they let me down. They disappointed me. They didn't have the power And so that perhaps is a little bit disillusioning about their team leader, their master. They can't do it. They did it for others, but maybe my situation's unique. Maybe you're not going to really be able to do anything here. It's, it's, It's beautiful because this man makes two requests. Two requests, and this is key in the whole passage. The disciples, Jesus said, well, that's the unbelieving generation. You're demonstrating unbelief. This guy comes with two requests, two primary requests. He says, if you can, help us. And secondly, he says, help me with my faith. I want to believe. I don't fully believe. I don't have 100% belief. I don't have a righteous, pure belief. I have a, uh, I can be double-minded about things. So yes, I believe now when I'm at church, but then... Monday morning, I don't necessarily believe in the same way. Not that God exists or that Jesus is the Savior. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of belief that says, you are able, you are willing, you can change my situation or change my heart to walk through it. You can make a difference. That's what I'm talking about. The kind of belief that shatters fear, shatters worry, shatters anxiety, that kind. That's what we lack. That's what I lack. That's what he lacks. And so he says, I'm asking two things. Would you heal my son and would you change my heart? Would you help me with my faith issues? There's a remarkable humility, remarkable humility here. Well, Jesus runs to that with his power. He speaks a word. To, uh, he didn't have a dialogue with the demon. He dialogues with the father. He speaks the word. The demon uh, then uh, cries out, verse 26, screeches, convulses the boy, leaves, and the boy falls down like a corpse, it says. Verse 26, so that many of them said he's dead. So it doesn't look very good right at first, does it? It's like, wow, the problem's gone, but the kid's dead. Sur- surgery went well, but he didn't, we got, we got, we got it out of him, but he, he didn't make it. That, that's what it's like. So he's laying down and Then what happens is Jesus comes and takes him by the hand, verse 27, and lifts him up and he arose. That's resurrection language. That's the language that's used for the resurrection. He arose. Everybody says he's dead. Jesus says, get up. And he rises. He's not literally dead. But it's a picture, the power of Christ to bring life, resurrection power to someone who is stiff and dead in this condition. So it's a powerful story and the interaction with the dad and the, the freedom that the son, son gets. It's, it's a story that reveals to us that where there is no human cure, no human answer, no human hope, in desperate situations where evil is winning, there's no power to remove the darkness, Jesus steps into the darkness and with a word brings life and liberty 
and freedom. And so we walk away saying the point of the text is that Jesus reveals himself as the one with power over darkness, power over spirits, power over anything that would hold people in bondage, power over death and giving new life and resurrection, that Jesus is powerful. That is ultimately what the passage reveals. And it secondarily reveals several things about how we relate to that Savior, our Jesus, the Christ with all power. And that comes in the third scene, verse 28. So after, all the, the, after the evil is dispelled and there is peace where there was chaos, after the teachers of the law leave, the disciples get away with Jesus, There's hugs and kisses and high fives and celebration all around for the dad and the boy. Takes the boy off, freed, healthy, whole. The disciples get with Jesus in private, and this is what happens. Verse 28. When he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Credit to the disciples for asking to learn from their failure. They do want to know what happened, what was the problem. And Jesus gives this really curious answer. This kind only comes out by prayer. Now, what's he saying? Is he saying, now, there's some demons. All you need is some holy water and an incantation. But there's other ones that you need prayer. There's some of them you just need to know the right words. And if you speak the right phrase... They're fine. They're, 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 they'll leave. But there's other ones that you've got to pray for. Prayer's not necessary in all exorcisms. Is that what he's saying? Prayer's not really that valuable except on this kind of demon. Of course that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that prayer is optional in any ministry activity whatsoever. So what is he saying? Well, look back up at verse 19. This is the key verse that helps us understand it, I believe. He answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? The problem is the problem of unbelief. That's the issue. And they are encountering this seriously uh, demonized boy, and there is some expression of a lack of faith, a lack of belief, a lack of trust in God. So they are not strong enough to deliver him. Now, what is so interesting is if we go back to chapter 6, which is worth, it, worth looking at, chapter 6, verse 7, we see that he called the 12, this is a previous scenario, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. So in chapter 6, Jesus deputized them with authority to cast out spirits, verse 13. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they had had tremendous success. They had gone out and delivered a bunch of people from demons. They had gone out and, and, uh, you know, with Jesus' authorization, had healed a bunch of people. So something amazing had happened uh, through them previously. But in this situation, they're unable to do anything. And what Jesus tells us is the problem was they didn't pray. They didn't pray. That's what was happening. They failed to pray. They had been successful previously. And in this situation, 
they do something. We don't know what. He says that they were unable. They were not able to deliver the boy. So they do something. But no one raises their hand and says, guys, we should pray. We should ask God for help. We should, we should, we should invite his power and his presence. I mean, and it's almost shocking, isn't it, to think, no one thought to pray? R- really? The problem was prayer, that they didn't pray, that they did something else. That is the problem. Now, admittedly, this was a serious case of demonization. He does say this kind. And without getting into it, in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul does use language about principalities and powers that seems to indicate that there, that there is a gradation of power of spirits um, in the, on the dark side, that, that there are perhaps demons with differing ruling powers. Um, so there is something maybe unique about this particular demon, that this wasn't a run-of-the-mill experience, perhaps. But still, what, what's at heart here is the need for prayer. And there's a gradation of our sufferings as well, whether it may not be demonic, but our suffering, our problems, our challenges. There can be a gradation of what we experience as well. And at times, we experience things in our life that is this kind, this kind, something where there can be no movement forward, where we are stuck, where there is an ongoing battle and darkness seems to be winning, where there is a threatening, where there is an unusual desperation. God, there's things in our lives that happen like that as well. Again, it may not be like this, but still we would say that this is something that's not moving in my life. This is something that's not changing in my life. This is an area where the darkness keeps beating on me and it seems like the darkness is winning and there seems to be no escape. This kind. We all have our this kind. And he says, in that case, prayer is what is necessary. Now, prayer is fundamentally acknowledging our dependence on God and our need for him. At the root level, that's what prayer is. We talk to God because we need him. Even if we're praising God, we're we're declaring his greatness. Even if we're declaring what he's done for us, we're confessing his power, which implies that we need him. When we're making requests, we're asking for his help. And no one does that here. The implication is they do something, but they're not dependent. They do something, but they don't ask God. They do something, but they don't rely on him. It's sort of like saying, we've done this. We've got this. We've got this one covered. We're okay here. We, 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 we know how to handle it. God, we've got it. They, they, they go out and attempt the same thing. And evidently, because they don't pray, pray because they're not looking to God, it, it reveals that they're unaware of their absolute inability. They're unaware of their absolute need for God and his power. That is always the case. When my prayer life is weak, when my prayer life is minimal, it's always a revelation, not that I'm too busy, not that I have too much to do. It's a revelation that I'm not aware, I'm not living with an awareness, I'm not living and responding to the awareness that I need God, that I am in need of his help and his power in my life. 
David Garland, in his commentary on Mark, says, Only when the disciples are caught up short do they learn that they do not possess anything. Jesus deputizes them, they go out, and they destroy the forces of evil. Next time, they tank, they fail, they can't do anything. There's a guy caught, there's a kid caught, young person caught in the grip of darkness, and they're having a debate. With the, they're having an argument. This is not the time, I mean, this is frequently the case in life, though, is it not? People come in, they come to Jesus needing deliverance, and what do they find? The people of God arguing. Arguing, fighting, debating, all this kind of stuff. So that, that's what's happening. And, and, and they, they realize they don't possess anything. He goes on to say, Only when the disciples are caught up short do they learn that they do not possess anything. The power belongs entirely to him and must be received anew each time through a life of prayer. It is his power. And we need him. And that need is expressed in prayer. That's what happens here. They're learning what Jesus said in John, that without me, you can do nothing. That's the lesson. Without me, you can do nothing. Look how they ask the question. I think it's telling. I don't want to I don't want to overemphasize one word, but I think it's telling the way they ask the question. Why could we not cast it out? In other words, they don't say, Jesus, why didn't you deliver them, the boy, through us? They certainly don't say, Jesus, we prayed. Why, did, why was there no answer to our prayer? <laughs> Absolutely, that's not what happened. Why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we be successful? Life's best lessons are learned through failure, and there is a real lesson here for the disciples and for us. And one of the lessons is that fruitful ministry is never mechanical. It's always, fruitful ministry always occurs because we are dependent upon God, and God is at work. That is always the reason. The reason we grow in our life spiritually is because we're dependent upon God and God is working in us. It is not something that we do. It is not technique-driven. Exorcism is not technique-driven. It's power of God-driven. In this case, he says, through people that are dependent. This, this is what we're doing right now. This is not mechanical. This this is not uh, technique-oriented. We're going to say, hey, you know what? Let's just throw everybody together. Let's get a building. And if we do the right songs, if we sing the right songs and get the right feel in the right songs, the right vibe going, then, then God will deliver. If, we, if, if, the right, if we speak the right way, if we preach the right way, the right formed sermons, the right length of time, under the right lights, the right, envi- the right location, the right environment. If we do that, then God, what, those are all techniques. God will move. Now, God will move for dependent people that look to him for power. There he glorifies himself. Small group is not a technique. Let's just throw everybody in the room. You know, and if we do it at the right time of the week and we ask the right questions and we sit in the right way and we have the right refreshments, you know, we do the, if we have the right technique for small group, community will follow. 
A community will follow when God is at work and his power is displayed through our lives in care and love for one another. That, that is, a lot of techniques and philosophies of small group ministry get bantered about as if there's some magic silver bullet that will, voila, make sinful people have harmonious relationships. It, there is a way that happens. It's called the Holy Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit, the power of God. And he comes in response to our prayer, and that's at issue here. No spiritual growth of any kind happens because of technique. Your marriage won't grow because of technique. I read this book. I went to the seminar. I did the, oh yeah, I heard this, this way they did it. I mean, the practices can be helpful, but we don't lean on them. We lean on the spirit. It, it, it's, it's by prayer. Parenting children is not a technique. And if you have young kids and you think it is, uh, let me and all the other old people in the room, like me, save you some grief and let you know that it's not a technique. I put my coins in the machine and then I get the, the soda or the candy bar that I thought I would get. Sometimes you press B7 and do what you think you're supposed to do and C9 comes out. I don't even like Fig Newtons. You know, sometimes that's what happens. It's not a technique. Kids are not machines. It's the Spirit of God that works through fallen people with broken techniques who who look to him in prayer and trust him. God must do the work. God must do the work. I'm not saying your kid is like this kind, you know, like, wow, you say my kid's like in, in total darkness and demonized? Like, no, I'm not saying he's like this kind. I'm saying every kid is, this, some are this kind more than others, but they're all this kind. <laughs> Everybody, it's, it's, it's something that we can't just make happen with normal practice. We need the Lord to intervene. That's what the passage shows us. And I love the interaction with the dad because the dad ultimately The Lord responds to the dad. And note this, the Lord responds to a man with weak faith. The Lord responds to a man who says, I trust you, Jesus, but I don't sometimes as well. I doubt, I'm unbelieving, I wrestle, I'm hot and cold. Sometimes I'm all for you and sometimes I wonder if I even believe in you. Sometimes I think you can do anything. And sometimes I say, where are you, Lord? How long, O God? I'm fickle, I'm inconsistent, but I'm here. That's the point. I'm here, and I've got my sorry faith, and I'm asking, and I'm leaning, and I'm desperate, and I'm saying I've got nowhere else to go. Would you be compassionate on me with my doubts and my struggles and my inconsistency? And Jesus runs to that and brings deliverance. It's the ones who aren't even leaning in and asking that miss the whole thing and say, hey, why why couldn't we do it? This guy never asked, why haven't I been able to do anything for my boy? He's saying, if you're compassionate and you can, help me. And by the way, while you're at it, would you help my faith? Help my faith. God responds to imperfect, dependent faith. Get this, Jesus brings dramatic life change in a situation where there is 
perfect but dependent faith. How does this apply to renewal? We're in a series called Revive. How does this apply to renewal? Well, here's how. Revival is all about our dependence on God. A renewed heart is a heart that is dependent on God. As a matter of fact, I think that's even a fair definition of revival. Revival is an awakening to our need for God. It's an awakening. It's people who are slumbering and living their life just like everybody else in the world, just going about their business, uh, not really tuned in to the Lord and his purposes and his calling and all of our various callings of life. Perhaps they have a truncated life with their religious section over here on Sunday morning and Wednesday night small group or whatever it is, and then just live like everybody else the rest of the week. So it could be a life that lacks that kind of cohesion with the Lord. They're just going about their business. Or maybe they're fairly faithful, regular people just doing religious stuff, status quo, business as usual, and all of a sudden, boom, their eyes open and say, how have I been living? What am I giving my life to? What am I doing? Who turned on the lights? I've been bumping around in the darkness. This is who God is. This is God's plan for my life. This is what God wants to do in our church and in our city and in our world. Lord, we need you. The lights go on. We see our need for God. Revival is an awakening to our need for God, followed by a renewed experience of his power. Everybody's getting renewed in this passage who's paying attention. The disciples are getting a lesson. Oh, prayer. We weren't thinking about that. We weren't thinking about desperation for you. We thought we knew the steps. We'd done it a hundred times before. The lights went on. You need God now for every situation, for every trouble, for every trial. None of it's mechanical. We need God for all of it. They, They get renewed. The man gets his prayer answered and he gets help with his faith. Because what he learns is Jesus doesn't just respond to perfect faith. Jesus doesn't respond to name it and claim it bold. If I say it enough and loud enough and frequently enough, God will come do what I tell him to do. That's witchcraft. That's not Bible. That's arrogance. This guy comes and says, look, I'm not faking it. Not faithing it. That's right. Faith it till you make it. I'm not faking it. I'm saying I got some doubts God, this has been going on for years. Where have you been? How come your disciples can help everybody else but not me? So I've got some real questions, but I'm here. And I'm dependent. And I'm leaning. Help my unbelief. Oh, you think he didn't walk away with his unbelief helped? You think he didn't trust in Jesus? He touched grace. He didn't walk away and at testimony time say, I believed enough. I claimed it. I stood on the word and God did what I told him to do. No one says it quite that way, but that's the sentiment. Whoa, check out your faith. Oh, man of faith. No, that's not what's coming. He's going, man, I messed up. I believe in Jesus, but I messed up. And my kid, his life is being destroyed, and I don't even know what to do about it. And I told Jesus that, and I threw myself at his feet, and I was dependent. I was desperate. And you know what? He had compassion. And he didn't say, he didn't say to me, okay, help my unbelief. You come back to me. You go get your faith going. How dare you? Unbelief? Who do you think I am? You go work it out. You get your faith. You memorize some stuff. You do some good deeds. You go get good enough and then come talk to me about deliverance. Now he takes him with a half faith and pours grace on him and delivers his son. 
That's revival. Revival is about dependence on him. And dependence on him is expressed primarily in prayer. There's other ways, but dependence on him is certainly expressed through prayer. That's how we express our need to God. Now, God's renewal comes to those who are in need. That's the nature of revival. Revival comes to dry people. Revival doesn't come to people flowing with water who need no additional work of the Spirit. It comes to dry people. Renewal comes to people who are stuck. Renewal comes to people whose heart feels like a desert, not a well-watered garden. Renewal comes to people who need his presence. And, and, And so those who are in this situation, those who are stuck, those who have no human hope for a solution... That's who gets renewal and revival, and that's how this passage ties in. And so if we are to experience revival, if we as a church are to experience revival, we must be dependent people of prayer. That is, we, don't, we don't pray enough to earn or require revival. Revival is grace. Renewal is grace. But we put ourselves in position. This passage doesn't teach the man had enough faith to earn God's blessing. This says the guy was weak, His family was being destroyed by the devil and he showed up needy and just threw himself at Jesus. That's what the passage tells us. And Jesus is gracious and has power over all evil and loves to display his power. That's what it teaches us. And so if we are to experience revival, we will need to put ourselves in that position. Not like the disciples doing our stuff and thinking, oh yeah, we didn't think to be dependent. And if we're to experience revival corporately, then we are to pray corporately. We're to be people that together pray and ask. And when I read this passage, I, I, I was like, the first thing I was thinking about it, I was going, man, how could he say you need to pray? Like, I know the disciples are, you know, not as sharp as you and me. But um, really? Nobody pray? And then I thought about me. I, I thought about us. I, I wonder if we could find ourselves in the story at all as a church. Do we find ourselves there praying? Do we find ourselves leaning in and praying to God? Do we, do we find ourselves hungry for his renewal? Is that on our radar? And if so, do we see our need? Are we comfortable going through the motions? Are we crying out to God to do something new and fresh, something that is beyond human ability? Or are we just running programs, going through motions? Do we pray together for God to renew us, us as a people, Do we ask God for that? Listen, our family, our church family, may not be experiencing the same sort of crisis this guy is where he's being nearly destroyed. I'm not saying that. So we're not this kind in the sense of almost dead and and demonized. That's not our church. It's not on our website. That's who we are. I don't believe that. But I think we've got some this kind. We've got folks who are stuck, who are barren, who are dry. We can pray for people who experience, we have people experiencing spiritual lethargy. And so do we just go through the motions and do more stuff? Or do we say, God, we're, we're pausing, we are stopping. You've got to renew us. You've got to help us across the board. We, we have imperfect faith, but we're here and we're asking, would you act? Would you help us get unstuck? Would you help us move forward? We've got young people in the church, wonderful young people, many of them saved and following the Lord. But just like their parents, 
We need a move of the Spirit among our young people. And, and do we cry out for that? Do we ask God for that? Are we, Lord, help us. Help us as parents. Help the, I'm not a parent, but help the kids if you're not a parent. Pray that. Help the next generation. I mean, we can get stuck in fruitful, things like fruitful evangelism. Rob and I had a spontaneous conversation this week. Had been studying this passage, had a spontaneous conversation, and uh, we were sharing how anecdotally, we've talked to a lot of people over the last six months, heard stories from people in the church of folks inviting folks, church, reaching out to a neighbor, trying to share their faith, boldly sharing their faith, doing all kinds of things. So we, we'd said, you know, and... and uh, it's this thought, you know, maybe fruitful evangelism is not a matter of just more invites and talking to more people. Maybe it's a matter of prayer along with that activity. And we just thought for a minute, hey, do, we, do we really lead in prayer? Do I really lead in prayer? We can have a tendency, I don't know about you, but we can have a tendency, the leaders in this church, you know, a tendency to map out a plan. Here's what we're going to do. And, uh, Lord, now, now let's get the prayer force around here. We've got to get, that sort of feels like, why couldn't we do it? And then, oh, yeah, let's get the Lord in here. Do you know anything about that in your life? Instead of, Lord, we're desperate and dependent, and it's expressed daily as a habit of my life. It's just who we are. It's not a meeting. It's not like a sermon that we had in April on prayer. Remember that one? It's like who we are. It's DNA. It's nature. It's dependent, desperate, perfect faith. No, messed up faith. Perfect lives. No, messed up lives. But you're glorious and we're here and we're asking. And we're not only asking for you to do things, Lord, we're also asking, would you change our heart? Help our unbelief. Help my unbelief. Rich community life, boldness. We got a lot of this kind. Places we need the Lord to move. We live in a city that is this kind. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's just not going to be technique and religious practice that's going to free a people in bondage to materialism and image and wealth. And that's not just them, that's us. It's not going to be, oh, yeah, dude, we got this, man, we got this website that you got to see. And man, we got some lights and we did all kinds of stuff. We started being super like relevant. And man, you could see, no, this kind doesn't come out by technique. This time comes out, this kind comes out by the Spirit of God breaking people's hearts, showing them their needs, showing them that though you have everything, you have nothing. Though you look pretty, you are miserable spiritually. And the only answer is the Spirit of God coming. That's this kind. For folks to become saved, it will take a move of the Spirit and not a technique. Not a technique. And for a church to be changed and for a city to be changed, it will come through people who, like this story, are coming desperate for God to move. Oftentimes, in the reading I've done through revival, about revival, oftentimes God begins with prayer. That's where he starts oftentimes. Sometimes he does something and it startles everybody and then they pray. Everybody always prays, always in revivals, though. That always happens. But sometimes it's one guy. I read a story about in, in the 1850s, powerful revival in New York uh, with one guy, not a pastor, not a missionary, not a theologian, a business guy who just says, I'm going to pray at my lunch hour. And he goes, so I think it's like on Fulton Street or something. He just starts praying by himself. 
and invites a couple others join him and a few others join him and the city was radically impacted new york city was radically impacted i heard one person say that 10 percent of the population was converted in a season of time in a year or two there whatever that would be uh was converted um because uh in response to these prayer meetings which were happening all the time I mean, in our city, that'd be like in the next year, 13,000 people getting saved. I don't know, we've got 130, 140, 14,000 people being converted in our city. That's renewal. That's powerful. And God always uses corporate prayer. Why? Because God wants dependent people. Why? So that his glory is on display. And the story is never, you know what we did? The story is we had nothing, including stellar faith, and God worked. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book on revival, he, he finishes, he actually addresses this passage that I'm reading to you from, and uh, he, finishes his, he finishes the chapter on it, uh, talking about corporate prayer, and, and listen to this, please. This is, this is what he says, and I was very affected by this. He says, so what our Lord said to the disciples is this, you will never deal with this sort of problem until you've been praying concentrating in prayer, waiting upon God. You'll never deal with this type of problem until you're waiting upon God, until he has filled you with power. Here's the vital question. Have you seen the desperate need of prayer? The prayer of the whole church. I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival. Perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups among friends, meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God, such as he shed forth 100 and 200 years ago and in every other period of revival and of reawakening. There is no hope until we do, but the moment we do, hope enters in. Oh, when God manifests his power, it happens as it happened in the case of this poor boy. With apparent ease, in an effortless manner, the devil is exercised, and the boy is healed and restored to his father. When God arises, his enemies are scattered. That is the story of all great revivals of history. But we shall not be interested in revival until we realize the need of this kind, the futility of all our own efforts and endeavors and the other absolute need of prayer, and seeking the power of God alone. It's, it's absolute, seeing our absolute need, our, our seeing the futility of our own efforts, and the absolute need of God. That's what it is. There is effort, there is activity, but it starts with seeing that that's not our trust, our absolute need, and that is expressed in prayer. And isn't it good news that God is inviting people who are weak in prayer, God is inviting people who are weak in faith, and saying, I delight to shatter the powers of darkness in your midst if you just come dependent, real, honest, as opposed to the disciples who do something and say, why can't we, and miss what the Lord wants to do through them. One author wrote, His majesty becomes most visible when human resources have become exhausted. When human resources are exhausted, that's when the power of God is on display. And some of you are at that place today. Your human resources are exhausted. Man, are you in a good place? You are set up. 
you are teed up for God to move and do something powerful, memorable, life-changing in you and through you. But it will require you making yourself available to His grace, looking to His mercy, even with your broken and imperfect faith. That's great hope. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.